It goes till noon, I think, right? Is it a full, full half an hour? Till noon, whatever. Okay. The whole 35 minutes. Oh, okay. All right. Um, as we begin, are there any questions about today's sermon that anyone wanted to ask? Half. Half. I'm, my mom's side of the family is all Hungarian, as far as we know. My dad's side of the family is mostly English. So I joke that my, my two selves are always warring against each other. The stiff upper lip Englishman is always trying to hold back the Hungarian that would cry at the drop of a hat. So my brother is much more Hungarian. He cries all the time. Um, <laughs> And we're convinced that it's payback for when we were younger and there was a seminarian who would preach at Escondido and he would cry all the time and we would sort of, we'd make fun of the fact that he cried all the time. Um, we were not teenagers. I'm not going to tell you what his name was. Um, who said that? Um, but he was always very weepy and so we would, as teenagers, un, you know, we'd make fun of the fact that he was so, you know, we would imitate him. My brother is sure that this is God's just providence, that now he weeps his way through sermons all the time. So um, anyway, that's apropos to nothing. Um, Just wanted to see if there was any questions raised by this morning's sermon. Okay. All right. Sin is brutal. That's true. But our God is a forgiving God, so you always want to balance between not leaving people despairing in their sin, but also not thinking of grace too cheaply. Um, And, you know, the Lord's Supper helps to remind us of that, that it costs our Savior to have his body broken and his blood poured out to save sinners. So um, anyway, okay, very good. So we're going to move on then to the Canons of Dort, and we've been talking about uh, Head 5, which deals with perseverance, or we could say preservation of the saints. And we got into um, Article 7 last time, and we're touching on some of the reaction or the rejection of errors that touch on Article 7. And so I want to go just quickly to paragraph 8 of rejection of errors. So that's on page 916 of the hymnal or on 284 of the Form and Prayers book. But paragraph 8 in the Rejection of Errors is tied to Article 7. And so Arminians would argue, and this is the error that's being rejected, um, that you can be regenerated multiple times. That you can be regenerated and then you can lose your regeneration and then you can be regenerated again and then you can lose your regeneration and then you can be regenerated again you can lose your regeneration. That's kind of how they argued. Um, The Reformed response to that is that this notion is absurd. That's why everybody likes Reformed people. Um, Your your thoughts are absurd. Um, And why is that absurd? Well, we'd have to lose the imperishable seed from which we're born. Um, that's what makes that notion impossible. Um, but also what Jesus says in John five twenty four, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, 
but has passed from death to life. You've passed from death to life. And what kind of life? Eternal life. And nothing about that is temporary, speculative, or losable. Um, John says in 1 John 3.14, We know that we have passed out of death to life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Um, And John is comparing simply those two things. There are people who abide in life and people who abide in death. And the Lord has said, whoever has believed in his name has passed from death to life. You can't pass from that kind of death to that kind of life and go back. Regeneration is something that is fully effective once it happened. It's a new creation, the New Testament says. It'd be sort of like saying God could say the light be light and then the light could stop being light at some point. It's just as impossible for the new creation to go back to being uncreated as it is for the work of the Holy Spirit to be undone. Um, and so that, that's why regeneration is so important to understand and such a comfort for believers because when God has regenerated us, we will never go back to being what we were ever again. I always think of how one of our professors put it, you know, God has changed me, I'm not what I was, and I'll never go back to being what I was ever again. I'm not yet what I will be, but I'll never go back to being what I was ever again. Um, And that's the confidence with which we live in the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Once you're born again, you can't go back. And that's the rejection being, uh, that's the doctrine being rejected. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Um, So we don't want to let anyone deny or, or, or teach that regeneration can go backwards. And that's what paragraph eight, that's the error that that's rejecting. Any questions about that? Okay, so we want to go then from paragraph 8 of the rejections um, to article 8 of the affirmative statements and think about what article 8 has to say about our regeneration, about the certainty of our perseverance. Um, This is always a very important article, and this is back on page 280 of the Foreman Prayers book or page 913 of the Psalter Hymnal. So there we have Article 8, which talks about the certainty of this preservation. The certainty that God will preserve us in the salvation that he's won for us. Um, And so what does that article say? So it is not by their own merits or strength, but by God's undeserved mercy, that they neither forfeit faith and grace totally, nor remain in their downfalls to the end and are lost. With respect to themselves... This not only easily could happen, but also undoubtedly would happen. But with respect to God, it cannot possibly happen. Since his plan cannot be changed, his promise cannot fail, the calling according to his purpose cannot be revoked, the merit of Christ as well as his interceding and persevering cannot be nullified, and the sealing of the Holy Spirit can neither be invalidated or wiped out. That is a fantastic article of the faith. Um, Why will we be certainly preserved, even despite the sins that may arise in our lives? How can we be sure that we'll preserve? Not by our own merits or strength, but by God's undeserved mercy. It's because of what God in his mercy does for sinners that we will will not uh, fail. Uh, We could say the point of this article is that man is weak, 
but God is steadfast. Uh, God will not let his people go. Psalm 32, 6 and 7, we read, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And then in verse 10 of Psalm 32, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Um, The Lord will preserve those who are his own. And so why don't we fall away? Because of God's undeserved mercy. Um, We recognize that it's undeserved, right? And so in our sin, we might say, well, I'm not sure I deserve God's mercy. I've fallen into serious sin. If David or Peter were tempted to say, I don't deserve this mercy, I've fallen into terrible sin. All of God's mercy is undeserved. God's mercy is shown to people who by nature don't deserve it. That's what grace is. It's given to people who deserve condemnation. But instead of condemnation, God gives his grace. So it comes to us not because of who we are, but because of who God is. And without it, we would certainly fall away. Um, You know, we don't just believe in the doctrine of total depravity, we practice it. Um, If we were left on our own, we would certainly fall away. We are too weak to walk in our own strength and to do these things. Um, And so that's why always we want to talk frankly about what God's word says we ought to do, but never leave people thinking that we can do that in our own strength. Um, The strength does not come from us. The strength comes from God, comes from God's spirit who dwells within us, um, who gives us the strength that we need so that we would not fail. Um, God's strength is greater than our weakness. And there are all of these things that we're told to look to Uh, for our encouragement. Um, They're all listed there. Um, We would fall except for the fact that with respect to God, it cannot possibly happen since his plan cannot change. His promise cannot fail. Right? So again, where are we looking for our certainty? To God's plan, to God's promise, the calling according to his purpose cannot be revoked. His calling and election are sure. Um, Calling according to his purpose cannot be revoked. The merit of Christ as well as the interceding and and preserving cannot be nullified. So the merit of Christ, which is interceding, right? He's interceding for us so that we don't fail. His intercession can't be nullified. Um, His preserving can't be nullified. He's not just a priest, he's a king. And as our king, he defends us and preserves us in the salvation that he's won for us. And so what would have to fail for us to fall? God's plan, God's promise, God's calling, Christ's merit, Christ's intercession, Christ's perseverance. You know how, see how all of that is looking for hope outside of us, right? If I said now, what I'm hoping in is my, I could never finish that sentence in a way that would actually give me hope. Because when it comes to me, I know my weakness. But when it comes to God, we know his strength. We know that his his weakness is stronger than our strength, Paul says. Um, God is strong. This, none of this will fail. His plans don't fail. His promises don't fail. 
His calling doesn't fail. The merit of Christ cannot fail. His high priestly work cannot fail. His kingly work cannot fail. That's how we know we will be preserved. Not because of something in us, but because of everything that's in God. Um, um, And the sealing of the Holy Spirit cannot be nullified. Right, so not just, not just the plan of the Father, but the merit of Christ and the sealing of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been given to us as a guarantee of what, we'll, what we will have, a down payment of what we will have. And he's going to not allow us to not receive the inheritance. Um, so again, we're called to look to the triune God as the source of our certainty, nothing in ourselves. If I look to myself, I would say, I'm not only going to fall, I will fall. Um, I will not persevere in my own strength. I will have to persevere in God's strength. But there's nothing lacking, and this is where we find real assurance, right? Because where, where do all our doubts tend to come from? When I start looking at myself, when I start looking at the quality of my faith, when I start looking at the quality of my Christian life, um, that's where we start losing assurance, losing encouragement, um, so where, do, where are we called to look? Outside of ourselves. Um, and ask the question, can any of God's plans fail? Um, and then the certain answer to that is no, God's plans don't fail. So we don't have to worry about any of those things. Um, any questions about that? That's why we can have certainty that we know God will keep us and we know when we're straying, he will bring us back. Yeah, Paul. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, it's not so much me, it's a synod of Dort. Those guys were pretty good. Um, they, but what they are doing is saying, where do we look for our encouragement to know that the plan of God's redemption won't fail? Because he's planned it, he's accomplished it in history by his son, he's applied it to us by his Holy Spirit, and he's preserving it in us. So the God who planned before the foundation of the world and who saved in time and history by the cross and in all of our lives is not going to let that fail. So it becomes closer to us personally in the sense of it gets applied directly to me in the application of redemption when I'm effectively called and put my faith and trust in Christ. His redemption accomplished on the cross is applied to me and the Holy Spirit is, is dwelling within me. So in that sense, it becomes more personal, but it's always, it's, our, our hope is this has been God's plan from the beginning of the world, and, he, and there's nothing that can interfere with his plans. Right. Right, he declares the end from the beginning. No, I mean, all of these things are, are Bible principles drawn out from the Bible, but what we're saying is God's plan can't fail because God's plans are not like our plans. You know, we make plans, but our plans we understand are subject to circumstances, right? So I had plans for the week I got COVID and I thought, well, that's out the window now. I'm going to be sitting at home now for the next five days. My plans are not, my plans are subject to the environment. God's plans are not subject to the environment because he's sovereign over the environment and he actually decrees what will happen in the environment. So God says, I've declared the end from the beginning. 
I declared from the beginning that the church would be preserved to the end. That's why I don't have to worry about my plan failing. And unlike us, where there are circumstances beyond our control that can interfere, there are no circumstances beyond his control. He's moving everything towards the end that he wants for it. Um, And that's why we don't have to worry about whether or not God can accomplish his plan because he's had the plan from the beginning and he's been moving it just the way he wanted it. That's why when Christ comes into the world, that happened in the fullness of time. That happened exactly when it was supposed to happen according to God's exact plan. His his plans are not subject to revision. Um, I always say God doesn't have plan A, plan B. God just has the plan um, because he directs everything. Um, He's moving everything towards the end for which he's determined it. So we can trust in all of these things because there is nothing that can interfere. Yeah. So in regard to this, I think everybody would be one with God. I love my neighbor. Well, We'll ask your wife in a second. Yeah. Outside of struggle with sin. Sure. Well, then you have to take them to God's promise. What is God's promise? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Right? So you have to take them to the promise and say, the promise is for you. That God, God says that to people who are, because oftentimes you'll meet people who are, I'm not sure I'm in the plan, so what does that make you? Worried makes you heavy laden with whether or not I'm going to be saved. So what do you say to that person? You repeat to them the promise. Jesus has said, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, you'll find rest. It's not your faith that saves you. It's the Savior in whom you put your trust, right? The same weak faith still clings to the same strong Christ. And once you realize that the promise is for you and you embrace the promise by faith, you recognize that's been part of his plan from the beginning, that he loved you enough for the gospel to come to you and for you to hear the promise and to embrace it by faith, that's his calling that you're responding to. That's the merit of Christ that applies to you. Christ is interceding for you. Christ is preserving you. The Holy Spirit is sealing you. All of those things are true because that's who God is. Um, So yeah, you have to repeat the promise to people, but the promise is open to all, right? So, well, I'm really burdened over my, okay, Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. Why are these things written so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing that you would have life in his name? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, because you, want, you can worry about your end of it. But again, you, what you want to always take them to is, okay, but then do you believe? Are you sorry for your sins? Do you believe in Jesus? Then you don't have a reason to worry. Because he said, you may come to me. He's holding out his hand to sinners. And if you've come to him, you've come, you've come into his hands. Because he planned for you to do that. Right? And the plan, you know, again, can, can go weave in a miraculous number of ways for different kinds of people. Sometimes it can be very ordinary. We talked about this. And sometimes it can be very miraculous. Sometimes somebody sees a movie, Ben-Hur, and wants to know who Jesus is, and that's how that starts. But it's all a way of saying this is how God brings us to himself. Um, and he's promised that those who come to me, I will in no wise cast out. Yeah. This plan sure is 
sure. And mm -hmm. when that was preached, it just opened up my whole heart to God's merit and how God is preserving us. Right. Yeah, the whole Bible does that. It continues to bring us back to what God has promised to do. So, you know, if anyone were to say, I'm, well, I don't know if the promise is for me, you can ask them, have you been baptized? Because what was the promise that God made to you there? I will be your God and you will be my people. Um, and so we can, we can say, I w the Lord made that promise to me. That promise is good. There's nothing that disqualifies that. That's part of our covenant theology. So all of these things contribute. And that's what the, the Synod of Dort is trying to do here is say, all of these things should contribute to our certainty. Um, the promise is all part of the plan and the promise is all part of that covenant theology. Um, that God makes promises and then he fulfills the conditions so that the promises will be good. That's what Jesus comes to do, right? Uh, so we get into that. The merit of the covenant is Christ. The plan and the promise is the covenant. So yeah, it's the ar you know, Horton would say it's the, the architecture of, of the whole Bible. It's all built around that. Um, so yeah, that's all part of the plan, the promise, the merit. It's all defined in terms of the covenant, yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely right. That the architecture is not always easy to see because it's, you know, we know this building has an architecture, but it's hidden behind drywall and other building type stuff. I don't know. Um, but, you know, the, all this stuff that, so we don't see the skeleton of it. Your body's that way too, right? There's bones and everything else. We don't see all of that, but it's, it's vital to me not being a gelatinous pool on the floor that I have a skeletal system. Um, so that's what we do when we do the Bible. Sometimes we're stripping back to see the, the covenants are the skeletal system around which the whole, the whole body of the book is written. Um, so yeah, it's, it's hard for us to take any of that out and not really understand what these things are. And if you don't have good covenant theology, that's why a lot of this is hard to work through. Because it becomes, didn't, don't I have to do my part though? Yeah, you can't stay where you are. I mean, that, that would be the word that God would give you, is you can't stay where you are. And that if you, if you were to just never come back to it, that says something about who you are and whether this promise is actually yours. Um, and that's, that's why sin confronts us with that reality. If, if you really understand sin, then you react to it the way David reacted to it. You react to it the way Peter reacted to it. Um, you hear it when it's told you, you repent of it. That's why Paul talks about what is repentance. It's that godly grief that works repentance without regret. We have that worked into our prayer of confession that we're asking for God to give us, because he said there's a worldly grief that leads to death. Um, and, there, and there are people who try to play the one foot in each camp. I can, I can have the promises, but I can still live the way I want. And, you know, it's sort of like, the woman who loves much because she's been forgiven much. Those who love little don't think they've been have been think of their forgiveness as little. Um, sure. Sure. We always have to say we don't know the heart, and we and it can be difficult to see the difference between weeds and wheat, right? So we even have parables that say, should we just cut the whole thing down? It's like, well, no, let it grow together for a while yet. Um, 
we need to try to see the difference. And so it can be difficult to see. And so we always want to make sure that we're not speaking in ultimate terms about someone's eternal destiny. But you can say with Scripture, you know, these people don't inherit the kingdom of heaven. Right? The Scripture says people who are engaging in these sins do not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And that sin can't be engaged in lightly with no feeling of grief because then you do have to begin to ask the question, are you really sorry for your sin? Because godly sorrow is a component of real repentance and forgiveness. Um, and sometimes, you know, we, we know these things intellectually, but we have to be told. You know, David had to have his sin exposed to him so that the deceitfulness of sin could be broken down and he could see it for what it was. But once he was shown it for what it was, it broke him. Uh, once, date, once Peter understood his sin for what it was, it broke him. Um, and it broke him to the point where he said, okay, now to be restored, I had to say, you know, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? That broke his heart to have to go through that. Um, but Jesus said, feed my sheep. And what do you find Peter doing then for the rest of his life? Feeding the sheep. And even when he's writing his second epistle, he says, I'm writing all these things down so that when I'm, when I'm gone, you can still be fed. You can still remember what I said to you. So that even when I'm gone, I can still feed you. Right? That, that, that shows repentance. It shows that turning. And so sometimes when we don't see the fruit of it, we have to ask why. Um, because we can't judge the roots, but we are told to look at the fruits as an indication of how the plan is growing. Um, so we always need to make sure I'm not making a judgment of the heart because I don't know what God is doing in the heart of that person. But you can say to someone on the basis of God's word, where you are now, you cannot stay. You're in a dangerous place if you stay here. God says you must go to the cross with this sin. You cannot remain as you are. Um, and the problem is sin is deceitful, and so that's what makes it hard at times to get a sinner to see that. Because they want to say, no, I'm good. But you have to do everything that God has called you to do. And you know, where is the evidence that you're, you're weary, you're heavy laden by this sin? Um, the rest is for them. Jesus in that same passage that leads to Matthew 11, right before that is very hard on the Pharisees who will not turn to the Lord. Um, and so we need that. We need to preach. You have to, have a, you have to have a hungering and a thirsting for righteousness. And where is the evidence of that in a person who is saying, well, I can do what God doesn't want me to do, and it's just fine. God hates sin. Um, he hates it so much that he sent his son to die for sinners so that he could relieve them of that burden. But the cross and what Jesus suffered shows us how much God hates sin. And that's what I would try to do with somebody who, but it's very hard because someone who's in that pocket will sometimes say, well, but God forgives. Yeah, right. That's why we said you know, last week, the devil is always the devil of tomorrow and God is always the God of today. Today is the day of salvation. Yeah. yeah, it's very hard when you have that. But we, do, we are reminded sin is deceitful. That's part of the problem. Any other questions? Go ahead and ask. I don't know we have enough time to do anything more productive on the cancer door. Um, yeah. Yeah, the covenant theology is all through the Reformed faith and a, a really important part of understanding the covenant of grace is how you get this understanding. And, and it was pretty much formalized in its, you know, pretty much in its, you know, 
today what we have is all the work that they did. So they had it pretty much solidified in terms of how it was understood. Yeah, I mean, it, it continues to go through refinement. Covenant theology continues to go through refinement because the history of the church progresses. So you need to be more clear about certain things to try to make better understandings. So sometimes people will say, well, you know, if I look at the Belgian Confession, I don't see the, the covenant of works. I don't see that language. Um, but we, we do say Adam transgressed the commandment of life. So covenant of works is, is a further specifying of how we understand our covenant theology, usually because you have, you know, it usually comes in the form of when people start to attack attack theology, and you have to refine it in response to things that are coming up so that people understand it more clearly what you mean. A good example of that in the Belgian Confession, which is written in the 1500s, is regeneration is not used in the more careful way the cans of Dort use it. So regeneration kind of just means sanctification broadly. Um, but what did, what did we realize as we go through and, and, and theology needs to be refined? We realize I need to actually talk specifically about that moment of new birth that gives birth to everything else, and then I can talk about sanctification growing out of that. But to talk about it all as regeneration is getting people confused. Um, and so theology usually goes through that kind of refining process. But the, the, the theology was all there, and that's how you can have this rich idea of God's plan and the promise and his word is calling um, because of the covenant theology. But all of our theology continues to get refined so that you can have it in a more clear form. Yeah. Paul? Ecclesiastes tells us there's nothing new under the sun. What's been done will be done again. You know, someone who says, well, their society was way different back then. Jeremiah could be describing our society today, right? In terms of they do things that no one even blushes over it. Um, so I think the Bible tells us we are all human. Um, and as the Roman poet Terence once said, being human, nothing human is foreign to me. Um, because we're human, everything in our human experiences, we, we go through it again. There is no... Ecclesiastes tells us what, what Terence as a pagan poet knew. What people experience, we experience. People are the same in every generation. Um, we might have better technology, we might dress differently, we might speak different languages, but people are the same. Um, they fall into the same kinds of sins, they need the same kind of law. So yeah, it, the societies that we go through um, are all variations on a theme. Yeah. But Ecclesiastes said there's nothing new under the sun. We like to think we're a better sort of people. We like to wag our heads at the Israelites and say, I never would have done that if I were there. Um, I shudder to think what I'd have done if I was there. Um, all right, well, that's the time we have. So thank, thank you for your good questions, and I'll leave it to Reverend Tedrick to guide us further next time. All right, let's uh, close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that we can have such certainty in the knowledge that you will preserve us, not because of anything in us. Certainly we know left to ourselves, we're too weak to stand for a moment, and our enemies are too great that we would certainly knuckle under. But we thank you that we are preserved by your work, that you have made a plan, and that you have promised, you've sworn an oath uh, that cannot be revoked. And by two things that are unbreakable, your word and your oath, you have secured for us an eternal redemption by your Son. 
You've called us into fellowship with him. You've applied his merits to us by the sealing of the Holy Spirit through faith. And we have in our Lord not only a high priest who has offered the sacrifice that has made us whole, but who continues to intercede for us, pleading not only his sacrifice, but also his righteousness, who is our king who defends us and preserves us in the salvation he's won for us, and who has sealed us with his Holy Spirit, giving him as a down payment of the inheritance that will one day be ours. And so we have that confidence that we will not fail because you will not fail. And so we thank you for that certainty that we can have. Uh, For those who walk in unrepentant sin, Lord, our hearts are broken that they, they see not their danger. And we pray that you would help them see it as you help David and Peter see their danger. Uh, that you would help us to have the words to show them the deceitfulness of sin and to guide them back into the way of life. We pray that you would be merciful to them and turn them back to yourself. So hear our prayers, Lord. Grant our requests. We ask for we ask them in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thank you.